Thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Redeeming Hope. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. If you want more information about our church or would like to support our ministry, go to our website at redeeminghope.org. Please enjoy the sermon podcast. Hey friends, thanks so much for tuning in to this online gathering of Redeeming Hope. I'm so glad that you guys are tuning in with us today as we're continuing on in our sermon series through the book of Ephesians. Today we find ourselves in Ephesians 6, looking at God at home. So if you have your Bibles with you at home, you can turn with me to Ephesians 6 as we read the first nine verses. It says this, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. This is God's word. So as we've been walking through and journeying through the book of Ephesians, you know, the first three chapters are centered around theology and the work of Christ on our behalf. And then these last three chapters all center on our response to Christ's work and with his power and with his grace inside of us. And so um, we talked, uh, we've been journeying through this, talking about how this relates to how we view sex, how we view marriage, and today how we view family relationships, both within the home and within the workplace. And this is all coming out of Ephesians 4, 1, where Paul says, I am a prisoner for the Lord, and I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel that you have been called to. So he's talking about, we want to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, worthy of the calling of the gospel. And he then talks about this idea for this specific section of submitting uh, to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so all of that is kind of churning as we get to this idea of God at home. And so we're looking at four ideas today, or four kind of sections of God at home. We're going to see um, God and children, God and fathers, God and vocations, and God and leadership. That's what we're going to see here. So first we're going to look at God and children, Ephesians 6, 1 through 3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and you may live long in the land. So um, we're going to see at each stage of, of Paul's conversation with us over these, five, these nine verses that there is like some amazing countercultural things that we are learning about the first century church as we read this writing of Paul that is being read in a church service 
in Ephesus. And one of the first things that we see here, one of the first countercultural things, is that children are in the service. Children are in the worship service. And that would have blown people's minds for a first century Greco-Roman culture, children were just considered slaves or considered property. Uh, A father could do whatever he wanted to with his own children, even kill them. And so for us to see children within a worship gathering learning the same content, the same truth about Jesus alongside their mothers and fathers would have just absolutely blown the socks off um, of, of other people within the first century context. And so he's assuming that there are children in the hearing of this reading, and that they are equal in the Holy Spirit to their parents. There is no junior Holy Spirit, right? There's no, there's no Holy Spirit 1.0 for kids and Holy Spirit 2.0 for adults, but we see it's the same Spirit of Jesus fills all followers of Christ. And so we see that there's no junior Holy Spirit. So, so children have the capacity to both receive the gospel and then respond to it in obedience. And what we see here in these three verses is that he's speaking both to underage children, that's children still under the primary care and discipline of their parents, um, not, not living on their own, not working on their own, not having families of their own, but he's also speaking to adult children as well, or children at all stages of life. And so what we see here, so I'm going to speak and I'm going to divide this both for, for um, children who are still under age and under the, the primary authority of their parents, and then also speak to adult children. So when we look at um, he's, children who are under age, or when we get to verse 4, who are being brought up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, still being brought up, still being matured by their parents, um, what we see is here that both parents, father and mother, are to be obeyed. That's what we see from the scriptures. You see, well, and, and where, where Paul ties this authority is crucial. In the Lord, we see this right here. Honor your father and mother. Obey your parents in the Lord. So we see that he's immediately, and he does this in all the different facets that we're going to look at today, but he immediately ties the call towards obedience with understanding that you're really obeying your Lord, you're obeying Jesus, you're obeying God as you obey your parents. Your parents are are like representatives of God on this earth, imperfect though they may be. But he's saying that authority does not rest on parents simply being parents. Just because your parents could procreate does not mean that that gives them the authority to do what, to tell you what to do. But he says where the authority lies is with the Lord. It rests on Jesus being Lord and how he has structured the universe and how he has structured the family. The parents are to be obeyed. Immediate obedience is instructed But immediate obedience is reserved for those who are being brought up, for those who are still underage. And then we see the next kind of section is talking about showing honor. And that idea is to be esteem someone as valuable, to look at someone and say, you are valuable. And this is for all ages, lifelong honoring. But then we come to this idea and this challenge, really, that we see a more modern challenge, because back then they would marry very early. And so they would be married out of typically um, out of their parents' house into their other house. So they kind of go immediately kind of from 
from one familial structure to another. But especially in a 21st century context, that doesn't always happen. Kids move out. Kids have roommates that are peers. Kids have um, uh, live on their own. Sometimes even people buy houses before they engage in marriage. And then there's, of course, the biblical ethic of, of singleness. And so there's actually a track or a pathway for people to be single their entire lives. And so what does that look like for adult children? Do adult children that are called towards a life of singleness have to just submit to every whim of their parents and, and obey their parents immediately every time until they enter into familial structure? No, no, that wouldn't make sense. So adult children are not instructed to immediately obey everything at all times, but they are instructed to treat their parents with honor and to esteem them and to have good wisdom and judgment. What we want is to be controlled by Jesus, not our parents. When you become an adult, you want to be controlled by Jesus, to not be, that not be filled with anything else that would, that would limit your ability to be fully filled and following the person in the work of Jesus. And this can happen in two ways, right? Like, like um, you can grow up and maybe have a tense relationship with your parents or with a parent. And when you become an adult, anything that that parent says to you, you immediately have a filter of no. I will not listen. I will not heed their advice. And that can be really damaging um, because we see in the Bible that the Bible calls us towards actually respecting all elders, all people in our life that are both positional elders and, and elders in age and to take what they say into consideration and to listen to godly wisdom. And so that would be foolish to just not listen to your parents at all. However, you would be when you immediately shut yourself off from any input from your parents or a parent, you're actually still being controlled by them. You're actually saying, I won't do what they're telling me to do. I'm going to do the opposite of what they're going to do, or I'm not going to listen to them at all. And they actually are exerting an element of control in your life where you can't think sober-mindedly about what they're saying. So that's one end of the spectrum. But the other end of the spectrum could be where you, you have adult children that just listen to everything their parents say. And that's not healthy either, because when you are an adult and you're forging a family and a pathway in the world, um, you, you actually need to be underneath the lordship and the authority of Jesus. And as you grow older and situations become more complex, your parents are not in immediate proximity to your life as they used to be as you were a child. And so their advice might not actually be the best, but you can actually be self-serving and you can seek to serve your parents so much to get some approval or some identity from them that they can control your life in that way too. So whether you completely disregard your parents' advice and counsel, or you do every single thing they tell you to do, both avenues are not biblical for an adult whose primary responsible his primary responsibility is to be under the following of life and teachings of Jesus and to be under the lordship of King Jesus. So we want to be controlled by Jesus, not our parents as adults. And so um, this does lead us to kind of a unique circumstance, though, both for those children who are underage and those, those kids who are adults, is, is how about parents who don't love or follow Jesus? This is a challenge for us in this world, right? So how do we esteem them? How do we honor them? How do we obey our parents as, as people who are still under their care, underage um, children? And how do we honor them 
if they don't follow Jesus. So here we, here we go. It, it says, children, you should obey your parents in the Lord. And so whether your parents are followers of Jesus or not, if you are a child, if you are a uh, still underneath the primary care of your parents, the authority that they have towards you is still from the Lord, even if they're not following Jesus. And what we see is that we need to ha- practice immediate obedience with our parents. Those who are underage practice immediate obedience to their parents, except in situations where they are going against the gospel, going against scripture. So uh, we actually have a biblical precedent for this. Paul says in Romans to honor the king and be subjected to um, the governmental authorities. And quite frankly, some of them are very anti-Christian. So Paul says that in one sense. But then we also see Paul is getting thrown in jail for defying some rules against preaching, right? And so how do we balance that? Is Paul divided? No, he's not. What we see is that we are to follow and respect those who God has placed in leadership over in our life. However, we, that also translates into saying, if it's something that's against scripture or against the gospel, then we need to not obey them, right? So we need a default to obedience with an exception if there's a gospel truth on the line. Now for adult children, how do you respect and care your, for your parents that might not follow Jesus or be following Jesus. I mean, that there are people that would say that they're Christians, but then the advice that they give is off and, and the, the, the lives that they live don't match what they say they believe. And I would say two things. Sometimes honor is closeness and sometimes honoring your parents is distance. Sometimes honoring your parents is closeness. It's actually going to them and investing into a relationship with them out of love and care for them. It's actually to give to them, to help them be around the gospel, help them be around the Holy Spirit that resides within you, right? So so that's that's a way to honor them and consider them as part of your oikos, as part of your community of family, friends, coworkers, and neighbors, where you actually spend significant time with them in order to lead them to Jesus and to share the gospel with them, to share a gospel way of living. And that's where I would say most people should fall to some degree, right? Um, where, where actually, it actually is involves a, a measure of closeness to honor an unbelieving parent in order to care for them, invite them to repent and believe the gospel. Now, there are situations when you have abusive parents. Now, this could be physically, emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, abusive parents, where actually there's something within your relationship that when you get closer to them, they sin against you more. They actually lie more. They, they get more angry. They get more bitter. They get more biting and cutting. And there can reach a threshold where honoring your parents is distance from them, where actually withdrawing from them and relationship from them limits their ability to sin against you. It actually limits their ability to sin if they're not in proximity to you. And, and this also will teach you that you are not their savior, that you actually can't save them. Only Jesus can. And so I've unfortunately been in some situations where I've advised people that Rachel and I have, have counseled and that I have pastored to, to do that. And I would say that's a more extreme case, but we need to have a category for that. That is actually honoring your parents to limit their ability to sin against you. So most of the time, Honor is some degree of closeness, 
leaning in to share the gospel with your unbelieving parents. But then sometimes it's limiting their ability to sin against you. And how do we discern all of these things, right? Well, we obey our parents and we honor our parents in the Lord. You see, obedience and honor are both centered on the lordship of Jesus, on his authority, on him being king. You see, in the Lord, we obey. In the Lord, we honor. And we honor from the heart that Jesus gives us, a new heart, a new life that is motivated by the work of Jesus on our behalf, who honored us when we deserved dishonor. And Jesus was obedient to his father, even to the death of himself, so that we could be saved. And so in light of this, we then say we have the capacity, children, you have the capacity to obey your parents and and kids, adult kids, you have the opportunity and the capacity to honor them in the Lord as you follow Jesus. You honor from the heart that he gives you. So that's God and children. Now we look at God and fathers. This is just one verse, but I want to unpack this kind of following the vein of our series and where where we have been going, walking through the role of, of husbands last week and the role of men and leading and guiding relationships as we looked at sexual immorality a few weeks ago. And so we follow that same vein by looking at God and fathers. Verse four, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So there is a distinctness about fathers here that is very interesting. You know, we see in these first three verses that both parents are to be obeyed and honored, but it's only fathers. They hold the special responsibility to reciprocate. There's actually uh, rules and guidelines on behalf of fathers. Now, again, this would be completely countercultural to the world of the first century Greco-Roman culture. Um, Fathers hold ultimate authority. As I said before, they could instruct, they could dictate, they could even kill their own children, as I'm sure some parents might wish sometimes that they could do. But there is never placed within the culture obligations for them to reciprocate, right? But here in the scriptures, we see a different ethic. We see they have obligations to wives. They have obligations to children and employees. And and saying this within the first century context would absolutely be remarkable. Now, I do want to create one minor aside for 30 seconds here that there's some people listening and involved even in our church that are going to be, that are single moms, okay? And um, I just want to encourage you that there is a way to fulfill this role of of bringing up your children in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. And and one of the ways that we do that is through community, right? Like this is why we're part of a local church family. This is why we need godly men speaking into young men's lives, young women's lives. Um, This is why we need surrogate fathers and mothers that are godly, that are appropriate, that are part of our local church. But also there is a passage as I was praying about this sermon from 2 Peter 1 that I think is helpful for single moms in this. And it says, the, it, says, it says, you have been given everything you need for life and godliness. You have been given everything you need for life and godliness. That's for the Christian. And so if you want to live a gospel-centered life, and if you want to live a godly life, he says he's equipped you with everything you need. And so single moms, as you look at this, you say, well, um, my child's father is not in their life, or if he is, he's not following Jesus. And how do we process this? Well, we process this by saying, 
where there is gaps, God will fill them, whether it be that the community of church, whether that be through special wisdom and care and authority granted to the single mom, he will take care of your children. So, But there is a distinctness to fathers, and there is a design for the family in which fathers have obligations to their children. Now, there's a negative and a positive here. The negative is don't provoke, and the positive is bring up, right? So with bringing up in different categories. So uh, let's look first at this idea of don't provoke. Now, that word provoke is an interesting one. It means to arouse anger or to be combative or to embitter. But the best word for it is to infuriate. It's this idea of infuriate. What he's saying, and I actually don't know, I think that he's saying this because fathers hold a special role in the house. But I also think, I wonder, if maybe Paul was saying this because he knows that fathers would be more likely to exasperate and infuriate their children. Like, I think that's just probably more of the male fatherly trait, the bent when there is sin and brokenness that potentially the fathers are more likely to embitter and infuriate their kids. Now, what could this look like and how do we avoid it? Um, Paul David Tripp has an amazing book, amazing talks on parenting. And, and he talks about how many times parents, and specifically fathers, can use different strategies to motivate their children towards obedience that can be very damaging, infuriating, and provoking. I'm just going to mention three, and that's fear, reward, and shame. So there's certain patterns in which you can run your household, fathers, that can provoke your children to anger and infuriation. One is fear. I don't know if you've ever been in this situation, but your kids are stomping upstairs when they're supposed to be in bed, and the father comes to the bottom of the stairs and says, you don't want to see what I'm going to do to you if I have to come up those stairs. Now, in that moment, how is he leading? He's leading through fear. He's trying to scare the behavior of this child. He's trying to scare the behavior of the child. He's really teaching them fear economics in their household. This is how you follow Jesus, as you obey. As a representative of God in the house, he's saying that fear is how we do things in this house. And there's always the specter of what could dad do that he hasn't already done if I go really far and screw up, right? So that's fear. That's a way to provoke your children to anger. One is Another one is reward, right? I'll give you X if you obey me. What you're trying to do in that moment is buy the behavior of the child. Now, if you say that to a kid who's, say, I'm going to buy you a new bike in a month if you're kind to your sister. And, of course, the child is obedient for a month, and he gets the bike, and what's the first thing he does? He runs over his sister with a bike, right? So you see that we're teaching children moral economics, saying if you're moral, if you're good, you get rewards, right? And this is completely antithetical to the gospel because Jesus was the most perfect human being in all of human history, and he got suffering and death as a result of that, right? So, so we're teaching our kids moral economics. Now, that, that works when they're in your household, but what happens when they get into the professional world where they're not given cookies and gold stars for doing the basic steps of being a good, moral, obedient person or employee, well, that creates an entirely disruptive and dysfunctional person. So um, it can be fear, it can be reward, it can be shame, right? Um, 
then there's there's kind of different ways that this can happen. But but you can say something like, "You cause me trouble and difficulty." Why are you the way that you are? You're just being arrogant right now. You're just being prideful. You're just being being uh, um, rebellious. When sometimes they are, but sometimes they, they might not be. Maybe they're just challenging you. And as fathers and husbands and parents, we need to be humble and receptive to the Lord speaking through our children. Remember, there's no junior Holy Spirit. So what we're trying to do is manipulate the behavior of the child. And there's various ways that fathers can do this. But what that does is it's identity economics. It's saying your identity is based on my assessment of you. And if you're following me, then you're good. And if you're not doing everything I tell you to do, then you are bad, right? And so it's it's shame, it's manipulation of the child and it's identity economics. So we can either use fear, fear economics. We can use moral economics to reward. We can use identity economics to shame. And so what he's saying is don't do those things. Now, what are we supposed to do then? Okay, well, I'm glad you asked because it's right there. He says, but bring up. Now, that idea of bring up is the idea of nourishing, cherishing, caring for holistically. It's actually used um, in a lot of contexts for physical, like to, to nourish physically. But clearly, he's not simply talking about that here. He's talking about a holistic care for your child. That's what fathers are supposed to do. So this is physical, emotional, spiritual, psychological. And so there's there's different ways that we can do this, but wisdom seeks to get underneath what a child is doing when they're being disobedient or they're being combative. It seeks to understand. It seeks to get underneath and connect with the thoughts and intentions of their heart to their actions. So again, Paul David Tripp in his book, Parenting, um, it's an amazing book. It's 14 gospel principles that can radically change your family. It's an amazing book for, for dads. Um, and in it, he gives an example or a list of questions to ask your child when they're doing something wrong or when you're walking into a situation. Now, I'd say many times it's easy to assume what's going on, quickly correct the action, and then leave. But it actually takes a lot more work to be a discerning parent to understand what's going on underneath your child's heart to really nourish them, to holistically care for them, to cherish them, and to give them good spiritual, emotional, physical, psychological um, food, nourishment, watering the garden of uh, your your children's heart. And so um, he gives a couple of questions to ask in a specific order. If you walk into a situation with your kids, the first thing is that you want to ask questions and ask the first question, what's going on? That gives you context. You want the child to help you understand what, how they are perceiving the world. This can sometimes correct assumption for some parents too. There might be a time where you're instructing your kid to do something, and maybe they don't hear you. Or there might be a time where you're asking a kid to do something, but they don't understand you. And so they're not rebelling. They're not in rebellion. They're not in disobedience. They simply don't understand, right? And that's actually your job as a parent to course correct. So the first thing is ask for context. What was going on? Next question. If they do an action that you're questioning, you're discerning, this might be disobedience or it is blatant disobedience, the next question you ask is, 
What were you thinking and feeling as that happened? What were you thinking and feeling as that happened? Then you can ask the question, what did you do in response to your heart? So what was going on in your heart? And then you ask the third question is, what were you doing in response to your heart? And then you can ask the question, why did you do it? What were you seeking to accomplish? This gets to the intentions of their heart. So we actually see in the Bible that the spirit discerns the thoughts and intentions of our hearts, but we never just act independently. We have thoughts, we have beliefs that drive our actions that have heart motivations and intentions behind this, right? And so to nourish a nourishing father, to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord is to gain context what's going on so you're accurately understanding. It's to understand what your child is thinking. What's the belief behind what they're thinking? Then you say, what, is they, what are they doing? What are their actions? And then finally, what are their intentions? So this could be a, an example of, um, of, a, of a scenario. You, uh, you have a child, you walk into the room, and um, one child is on the floor crying, crumbs on his face. And the other child is standing above them angry. You say, hey, what's going on? What happened? You go to the child that's standing above them angry. What's going on? What happened? Said, he ate my cookie. Okay, right? Um, and I pushed him down. What else was going on? Okay. Uh, what happened? Why is he on the floor? I pushed him down. Okay. All right. So what were you thinking and feeling as he was eating your cookie? I was mad. Okay. What, what did you do in response to being mad? I pushed him to the ground. Okay. Why'd you do that? What were you seeking to accomplish? That was my cookie. And I was mad at him. I pushed him to the ground. You see what we're doing? We're sandwiching thoughts and intentions. And we're sandwiching action in between. So we're developing a connection between this is what they're thinking. They were mad. This is what they were thinking and feeling. Then we see an action to shove the child to the ground. And then you were, why did you do it? The intention underneath of it was, that was my cookie and I'm not getting it back. Thus, I need to punish, right? And that's where you can begin to shape and mold and really bring up and nourish and care for holistically your child's heart. Now, how this plays out can be different in different scenarios. How you punish, how you correct can be different. But this is wisdom. I'm trying to point you to wisdom, not preferences. And when you look to wisdom, and not preferences, then you're going to be able to make wise decisions based on your personal convictions and the structure of your family and the children that you're trying to care for. So parents, you are called, and fathers, you are called for gentle direction and deep, thoughtful care. So look at what he says here. So those are some of the kind of the principles of how to nourish, but then bring them up in what? The discipline and instruction of the Lord. Well, Pastor Derek had taught me a lot about this idea of discipline. It's paideia. He's used it before and talked about it before at Redeeming Hope. And, and, and it's this idea of having just enough discomfort. This is discipline. Discipline means there's just enough discomfort to change the direction of where your child is going. So it's not retributive 
punishment. It's not saying you did this, thus I'm going to give you this. You you pushed your brother down because he ate your cookie. I'm always going to give you three spanks. Or I'm always going to take something away. Or I'm going to do this or that. That that is it's not retributive and law-based. What it needs to be is what is the punishment that is appropriate for the situation that will cause just enough discomfort to change their actions. All right? So discipline is focused on actions and the actions of a father towards his child. But then we see this idea of instruction. It's this idea of more intellectual. This is counsel. This is one of the words for counsel in the scripture. This is speech that corrects incorrect conduct. This is your thoughts. So this is having conversations with your children. This is teaching your children biblical principles. This is teaching them consequence. This is teaching them wisdom. You're having good back and forth conversation where you are speaking life, where you are speaking truth, where you are speaking counsel into your children. And all this must be done with gentleness. And Paul, there's a um, parallel passage here in Colossians that he wrote around the same time. And he, he says this, but then adds a little something at the end. And he says, fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. See, there's a principle here, is that your children's feelings must be considered in your punishments and in your disciplines and in your instructions. Now, should your children dictate what you do? Absolutely not. Their emotions should not dictate how you respond to them. However, you must carefully consider your child's emotions. If you have children that are hurt, if you have children that are upset, if you have children that are angry, you need to consider why they're angry. You need to cautiously, carefully think about what they're feeling so that they, you don't push them towards discouragement. You want to push them towards encouragement. Now, again, you don't let your children dictate your response, but you let it, you do take that into consideration to both, to encourage them in humility as fathers. And so if your kids have a pattern of consistently being discouraged in certain areas of conversation with you, you need to change and you need to listen to them as if they come to you. So the analogy that I have for this is like a wine press versus a garden. I think a lot of modern fathers, especially in the Southern context and maybe even in the evangelical context would see themselves as a wine press where you throw grapes into a wine press and then you then you, you put heavy weights down on the grapes to squeeze out the juice. And this idea of immediate res- results can happen through shame and fear and reward-based um, uh, parenting, right? Um, you can get immediate results, but they're not long-lasting results, and they never touch the heart. And so... I want you not to see yourself like a wine press where you just have to violently kind of address issues and squash issues immediately as they come up all the time, harshly, sternly. But I want you to see yourself like a gardener. You are tilling the soil of your of your children's hearts. You're planting seeds. You're watering them. You're seeing them grow. You're pulling weeds, right? You're trimming back things. You're you're pruning, right? You're you're withholding at certain times of the year. So, so you're, you're withholding certain things. Sometimes when you're in a garden, you, you don't want to overwater the plants so they can die, right? You want them to build resiliency. So sometimes you need to let your kids build resiliency. And yet other times you need to give them care and overcare and grace and just, and, and a lot of care and attention and, 
and and you're pulling weeds and you're you're trimming here and you're pruning there. How do you do that? Fathers, it's from the heart. And we see right here, what does it say? It says, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is not your discipline. This is not your instruction. You're not relying on your own power of discernment and your own power of preferences and your own perceived understanding of parenting. You must rely on the Lord to give you clear discernment on where you're going. Each situation with your kids must also be done with care, with no leftovers. You don't want to have leftovers from previous experiences with your kids to dictate how you're responding to them in the moment. So that's fathers, God and fathers. Third, we see God and vocation. This is what it says, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. So I've got to pause here and take two or three minutes and just explain the idea of bond servants here. We've explained this before as we looked at Colossians and Philemon, which deal also with these same topics. But um, bond servant is is a light phrase. The actual word in Greek is slave, right? And so we need to approach this not from a Western 21st century context. We have to think that this is written in the first century. So slavery was not the same as we understand it in North America today. It was not related to ethnicity. It was not bigoted against a specific group of people. There are many different people from many different cultures and many different socioeconomic classes that were considered slaves in the first century where Paul was writing. It more had to relate to your socioeconomic status. And some people would have to be slaves. They would actually um, voluntarily do it for job security because they there was certain provisions afforded to slaves where a master would have to take care of them and feed them. And, and in times where work could be very hard and getting a skill set could be very challenging, some people would actually sell themselves into slavery, more like how we would understand indentured servitude, um, to protect themselves and their family and to pay off debt. So, so if you were to say, and there's different classes of bond servants based on the socioeconomic status of their household. So if you were to say um, all slaves unite and rebel against your masters, that would make no sense. No one would understand that in the first century. Um, that would have no bearing on that whatsoever because they'd look at you and say, okay, I'm not the same as that guy over there. He's, he works at a dude that only has, you know, two servants and slaves. And I, I work for a guy that has 500. And I'm the manager of all the 500 slaves. So I'm not anywhere near like that other person, right? So, so it's more socioeconomic than it is ethnic or bigotry related. And, and what's really remarkable and countercultural here is that Paul is saying that slaves and masters both have joint responsibilities to honor God equally in their respective roles. So this is really seeing the gospel at work in every relationship. And again, the slaves would be in the same place as their masters listening to this sermon right here. It's how to be a Christian in everywhere you are. And so um, here we see the household referencing servants or slaves or bond servants, but we're, we're going to apply this to professional relationships because it, it, there is a correlation. here. So what he says 
is that bondservants are to work and live from the heart. We see this at least twice here. We see fear and trembling with a sincere heart. So what he's saying is don't look to just work when people are watching you, but actually work as slaves of Christ. Work as a slave of Christ. See him as your boss. See him as the person that's that's dictating your job and work for him every day. And then he says, from the heart, serving Jesus underneath authority, not to any man, not looking and being dependent on man for rewarding your faithful work, but rather looking to the Lord who will see and reward every faithful act that you do. And then we see this, so crazy, um, three different times, as you would Christ, as bondservants of Christ and service as to the Lord, right? So what he's saying is we do all of this. You are an employee as you are an employee of Christ, as you would serve Christ, as you would see Christ as your boss. You serve him and you serve him through being faithful in your vocation. This is to the Lord, right? So we see up to this point, now we see marriage and parenting and vocation all as unto the Lord. See, you don't work for a boss. You don't work for an organization. You don't work for a paycheck. And you're not working for the weekend. You work as unto the Lord. You work because Jesus is ultimately your boss and he's placed you where you are. And so you do an honest day's work because Jesus has compelled you to, because Jesus has placed you where you are. That's God and vocation. Very quickly, God and leadership. Ephesians 6, 9. Masters, do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, that there's no partiality with him. So what he's saying is treat your servants the same way. Again, this is revolutionary. First century, there was no provisions on masters. They could do pretty much whatever they wanted to do with their slaves. They had to provide food for them. They had to provide shelter for them. There was some legal ramifications if they were overly abusive, but they could threaten them and had a incredible amount of control over their life, as a lot of modern day bosses do over their employees. They have a lot of control over their life. They have a lot of ability to make their life better or worse. And especially it's easy, especially if you like people to say, I'm going to give your life, give you a better schedule, give you ease of restrictions. I'm going to um, make your life better and make other people's life not so great because I like you, right? That's what That's what bosses and people in leadership can have the tendency and the temptation to do that. But what he's saying is is that that actually masters and slaves both have the same guidelines. This is countercultural. Why? Because they ultimately have the same master Christ. And what he says is don't threaten the people that work underneath you. This don't motivate through threats, but rather through encouragement. He says have encouragement and have humility. So don't motivate through threats, but motivate through encouragement. And then don't presume ultimate authority over your employee's life, but live in humility as one who is underneath authority. So leadership coming from the heart as God is leading us. So as you can see, this all connects back to our heart. This all connects back to how we live in response to Jesus. And what we've said for years at Redeeming Hope is that it's not about what you do, it's about who you are. And you can't change who you are. But when you're in proximity to Jesus, he can change who you are. And so when Jesus changes your heart, your actions follow. 
that everything changes. And so if you look over the course of your life and you haven't yet chosen to follow Jesus, all of these are great guidelines for you that you're never going to be able to follow because it all references back to as unto the Lord, to the Lord, from the Lord, in the Lord, in him, right? Can't do it unless you're rooted in him. So in order to live a life like we're talking about here, you need to follow Jesus. You need to hear this message that Jesus has saved you. You need to believe in your heart that it's for you that you need him. You need to obey by making Jesus Lord and master and king and commander over your life. Now, if you are a follower of Jesus, you you can do. There are things you can do living from the heart that Jesus gave you. Children, you can walk in honor and obedience to the Lord by obeying your parents and honoring them. Fathers, you're called to walk in repentance and redirection to Christ. That's what you're called to do. Repent and redirect to Christ. Vocational workers, you are to walk in sincerity and service to Christ, service to the Lord, working as unto him. And finally, leaders, you're to walk in encouragement and humility in Christ. Now, here's the truth. This is hard. This is really hard. And what do we do? How do we do this? How do we think through this? Well, here's the deal. There's someone who's fulfilled all these roles. Child, father, slave, and master. You see, it's only when you see that the master of the universe became a slave, who was subjected to threats, who was subjected to injustice, who was abused, who ultimately died, so that you could become a son or a daughter again, so that you can come back into God's family, so that you can come back to the best father, so you could come back to the best master and come underneath his lordship, where he is guiding and directing you to give you grace to change, to give you grace to see yourself as a child, walking in obedience, to see fathers compassionately guide their children. He brings you back underneath his loving mastery to see you work unto him and not for anyone else. And he brings you underneath his authority to see that the only authority you have is rooted in what he's already done for you. You see, it's only when we realize that that we can truly change. It's only when we realize that the master of the universe became a slave so that you and I can become a son and daughter and have him as a benevolent leader and master in our life. And that actually is what motivates us to do all of these things, love and grace, wisdom, and care. Go, believe this. Believe the truth of the gospel for you. Believe in the work of Jesus. And let that transform your life. Thank you so much. And have a good day. Thank you for listening. We gather every Sunday at the Clarksville area YMCA. For more information, please go to our website at redeeminghope.org.